So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 11. We'll be in Psalm chapter 11. We are putting a pause on our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we are unpausing a series that began last year in the book of Psalms. The Psalms have had such an amazing impact on our lives. So many of you would just testify that they have ministered to your soul in times of need. Maybe it was at a funeral that you were at. Maybe it was in a devotional period. I know that that is where I turned as a pastor and as a Christian when COVID-19 was beginning in, in March of 2020. Where do we go? And we went to the Psalms and we studied the Psalms together via YouTube for several, several uh, weeks there. And I just, they've been such an encouragement to my soul. I pray they're an encouragement to yours, but they are the perfect way of us as humans to respond to God. The Old Testament is divided up in the, the story of God's people, the writings from among God's people, and the prophets of God's people. As we've been studying the Old Testament in our students' uh, ministry, that's been the way they've been divided. And so uh, this is not the story or the history of God's people. This is the writings of God's people, how they, in history, have responded to God. And so this is Israel's hymn book, if you will. It's certainly the Christian's uh, hymnal as well, as we can turn to it and know the right ways to express our response and our emotions to God, to see God uh, the way that he would want us to see him. They teach us about the importance of justice and righteousness, and ultimately that God is the one true and righteous judge and king, and he will establish his kingdom of righteousness. So the Psalms, I think, are always timely. We're going to endeavor to cover 10 of them this summer. Uh, I told you last year, and I'll just repeat it again, I like closure. And, and so this is like a, a pastor um, longevity model is to start studying the book of Psalms, all right? So we've got 14 more summers at least uh, together. So if the Lord wills, uh, but this summer we begin with Psalm chapter 11. And before I read, I just want to give you one last word of introduction, and that is over the summer we'll be... Uh, reading and studying from the English Standard Version. Now, if you were here at our combined ABF, our combined Bible fellowship in the sanctuary, you heard Brother Mark mention that our church recommends two English translations of the scriptures, and that are the, the English Standard Version and the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard are in the pews. This summer, I'll be reading from the ESV. I find, personally, um, just the, the, the phrasing and, and the uh, familiarity of the ESV. Um, I just find it a little more eloquent personally, um, but both of them are great translations. But with that being said, I invite you to stand as I read uh, from the English Standard Version, Psalm chapter 11. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test 
the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. know me well, uh, you know that I uh, like alliteration. I like dad jokes. You know, it's Father's Day. This is not a joke, but this is an alliterative title that came to mind that I passed over, like first draft, right? Okay. This was going to be the title for Psalm 11. It was just too much to put on the fancy screen with the palm trees. Went with uh, a different one, but here's the first one that came to mind. That is the proper perspective when the pillars are plundered, perilous and penitent people. That was going to be the title of the message for Psalm 11. The proper perspective when the pillars are plundered by perilous and penitent people. And by now the the wheels were getting greased and I thought, no, maybe it needs to be something a little different. And so I had this one come to mind. It is a a faith-filled focus when the foundations are fractured by frightening faithless foes. Faith-filled focus when the foundations are fractured by frightening faithless foes. Now, both of those would have fit very well with the text today. So if you like alliteration, uh, you can just write that at the top of your outline there, and you can choose your own title, choose your own adventure this morning. But both of those titles seemed, if I will, a little extra. (laughs) So I settled on what is the beginning of the line from the chorus of the B.B. McKinney hymn, Have Faith in God. It is what came to mind when I was considering the type of faith-filled focus we should have, the proper perspective we should have. This hymn is what came to my heart and mind. Verse 4 of it goes like this. Have faith in God, though all else fail about you. Have faith in God. He provides for his own. He cannot fail, though all kingdoms shall perish. He rules. He reigns upon his throne. Have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches o'er his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And that could be the message today. Right there. That is the summary of the message. And in fact, the psalmist himself gives a summary at the very beginning of the text of what Charles Spurgeon called the song of the steadfast. Have you been struggling to stay a steadfast Christian in these trying days? This is the song of the steadfast. It begins, in the Lord I take refuge. It's a preemptive strike to the answer of the question of despair found in verse 3. 
Another today's message could have been, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do when the foundations are being destroyed? But I didn't want to settle on the despair because that is not where the psalmist begins or ends. He answers preemptively, in the Lord I take refuge. A Bible teacher from the late 1930s wrote a Bible study which, in which he called this question in verse 3. The burning question of our day, 1939. <laughs> and my thought was, if that was the burning question of the day back then, how much more so today in our world? The burning question, if the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous Notice, as Thomas Fuller points out, the word foundations is in the plural. Foundations are plural. And so imagine with me, kids, if you're here today and you build Legos, as Judah and I like to do sometimes, if you had uh, four pillars or four columns in a building that you were building, consider these the foundations, the plural foundations, now, if your big brother or your friend came aside and knocked one of those pillars out, the, the roof on top would probably stay in place, wouldn't it? It would be balanced by the other three that were holding it up. But what would happen if the foundations were being destroyed? If many of the pillars that held up your building were being chopped away? The whole thing could crumble. It would crumble. This is what David and his friends were afraid of. You see, wicked people, they were hiding under the cover of darkness, and they were scheming with slander and deceit to shoot from the shadows, the text says, to take down the one that God had anointed to be the future king. And the very systems that were meant to uphold justice and laws that God had given were being set aside in the effort to take David out. You see, when the bad guys aren't fighting fair, up seems like down, and right seems like it's wrong. Leonardtown Baptist Church, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, but I submit to you today the foundations are being destroyed. The foundations are being destroyed. Take, for example, the foundation of society. Justice often seems skewed, as it would seem, toward the wealthy and the powerful. Laws do not uphold, nor do they promote, oftentimes, human flourishing. Abortion is euphemized as health care and has been designated as a so-called right. Pornography is rampant among not just adult, but teenagers. And women and young children are being exploited for the sick gratification of cowardly men. But it's not just the foundation of society. It is the foundation of family. The institution of marriage is facing an all-out assault. And lest we think that all began in 2015 with the Obergefell decision, or so-called Pride Month coming uh, to the fore these days, 
Listen, divorce was running rampant in the church and in families long before so-called same-sex marriage became an issue. The foundation of society, the foundation of family, and it's not just those that are fractured and torn asunder. It is even the foundation of what it means to be an individual made in the image of God. Racism continues to rear its ugly head with worldly solutions like critical race theory falling woefully short of explaining or addressing it with any God-honoring progress. And even something so fundamental as what it means to be male and female, the foundation of our gender and sexual identity is being met with a tidal wave of identity and transgender ideological doctrine. The foundations are being destroyed. But we are not the first to face foes that are intent on turning God's righteous ways upside down. There were those in David's day who wished to plot the pillars of righteousness as well. Now, it's hard to situate this psalm specifically in the story of God's people, right? Where does this psalm fit in the context there are a couple of uh, suggestions from commentators. Both of them, a couple of them come from 1 Samuel. There is, for example, 1 Samuel 26 and verse 20, where we are told in Scripture that Saul, the king of Israel, in the middle of the verse, had come out to search for a single flea like one who pursues a partridge in the mountains. Do you see the connection? A bird, flee like a bird to the, the mountains. So some say that maybe it was when Saul was hunting David in the mountains. Another commentator says perhaps it was 1 Samuel 18, uh, backing it up a little bit. That is the backdrop. In, in verse 8 and 9 of 1 Samuel 18, we see Paul, Saul was, excuse me, was very angry. And this saying that, that had come about because of David's victories was displeasing to him. They ascribed to David tens of thousands in victory and war, and to Saul they had only ascribed the thousands. And Saul said, what, can, what more could he have but the kingdom? And the scripture says Saul eyed David from that day on. He was looking for an opportunity to bring him down. So I'm inclined personally towards a, an earlier setting like that one where David is still in the court, and at a time when perhaps, as Spurgeon recommends, it would have been seen as dereliction of his duty to flee his duty to serve the king. So Saul was uh, eagerly looking for an opportunity to take him down, but his advisors, David, are telling him, get out of town, get out of Dodge. But that would have been seen as proof of cowardice and breach of duty. But whatever the case, whatever the setting specifically, the message of this psalm is not limited by the historical circumstances because the central issue is the persecution of the upright by the wicked. That's why it's so useful to us even today, why God has seen it fit for it to be in our scripture today. That's exactly what was in Saul's heart toward David throughout that whole section in 1 Samuel. Whether it was Saul's failed attempt to have him killed by the Philistines for the bride price of Michael, or his failed attempt to make David a shish kebab with his spear, Saul was set 
on destroying righteous David. In fact, Saul was so intent on David's destruction, he was even willing to have Ahimelech and the other priests at Nob killed for assisting David. When his own servants wouldn't do it, he ordered Doeg the the Edomite to do his dirty work, and Doeg killed 85 priests, as well as the townspeople of Nob, men, women, boys, girls, children, infants, animals. It was one of the darkest moments in that grim period of Israel's history. The king, Saul, who was responsible for maintaining and enforcing law and order and upright living, was destroying the pillars himself. As James Montgomery Boyce says, those who lived in that time might also well have asked, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? So we become sympathetic to the well-meaning advice, I believe, of David's friends. I do not think his advisors were being malicious here. One could even say they were being realistic. Get out of Dodge, David. But in reality, their counsel has a tinge of despair in it, doesn't it? They're not employing the eyes of faith that the psalmist is using. He is looking to the Lord and to his sovereign reign as a refuge. They are tempting him to despair. One commentator makes the insightful remark that this temptation is a timeless temptation. Even Jesus' disciples advised him to turn away from the work that God had given to him. When Jesus set out for Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, the disciples said to him, well-meaning, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you would go there again? Later, when Jesus told his disciples clearly that he must be killed and rise again, Peter tried to talk some sense into Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord, that this should ever happen to you. And as we'll study in Mark's gospel later this fall, Jesus rebuked him. He said, you're not thinking of the things of God, but the way a, a, a human thinks. Humanly speaking, what could have come from Jesus' death? But Jesus trusted God. And through his faithful obedience, we were saved. Jesus did not submit to the counsel to despair. We must keep this in mind ourselves. When we are tempted to despair, And brothers and sisters, if the beginning of this message and the painful reminders of the foundations being destroyed around us is not temptation to despair, I don't know what is. There are times when Christina and I will look at each other in the eye and say, let's just go live in the woods somewhere off the grid. Can I get an amen, hallelujah, maranatha, anybody? But that is not the answer of faith. That is not the answer of faith. No, Brothers and sisters, we do not have to isolate physically. We do not have to withdraw emotionally, nor do we have to think nostalgically, as tempting as that is, of the good old days gone by, wishing they would come back. By faith, even now, today, we can affirm God rules, God reigns, God sees, God tests, 
God will judge and he will reward the upright in heart. The psalmist gave us the preview in the beginning of verse 1, but now in verses 4 through 7, he expounds on what it is to have a faith-filled focus, what it is to have a proper perspective. First of all, we see God rules everywhere. God rules everywhere. The first part of verse 4 tells us, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. That word, the Hebrew word used here for temple is hekal, which can also mean palace. The Lord is in his holy palace. And then if you follow the parallelism of the text, the next line says the Lord's throne is in heaven. It's a fitting place for a throne to be, right? In a palace. At this time in Israel's history, regardless of the contexts that were considered, Solomon had not yet built the temple. So it seems very clear that David is referring to the temple of God and the palace of God being in heaven, from which the Almighty looks down on us. If you think about it, wherever you go in this world, when you're traveling, when you go across the seas, wherever you are, if you look up, there are the heavens. It doesn't matter where you are on this globe. If you look up, God is there. And he rules and he reigns on his holy throne. He has a throne. He's ruling and reigning everywhere. The extent of his sovereign reign is not limited to a physical temple. His heavenly throne room expands over every corner of this globe and of our universe. God is ruling and he is reigning. When the foundations are being destroyed, where is God? Look up! He is on his throne. He is not frantically worried. God is not caught off guard. He is not biting his anthropomorphic fingernails. His throne is in heaven. And from that vantage point, we are told, secondly, God sees everything. From that vantage point, God sees everything. The last part of verse 4 His eyes see, and his eyelids test the children of man. Whereas the wicked think they are getting away with their evil schemes under the cover of darkness, David knows the Lord's eyes see what they are doing. Let this verse serve as a warning to those who would use pornography, thinking it's harming nobody because it's taking place in the shadows. Listen, the Lord sees. Let this be a warning to wicked men who would abuse their power, even pastors who would abuse their power, who think they've gotten away with abusing women or children with their manipulation. Listen, the Lord sees. Let this be a warning to those who would harbor inner thoughts of hatred and disdain for someone else made in the image of God. Listen, the Lord sees. Let this be a warning to those who covet the wealth of their neighbors or relatives. The Lord sees. But his eyes not only see from a 30,000 foot view, so to speak, from a distance. The second 
part of that parallel line says his eyelids test the children of man. God is not merely catching a bird's eye view. The picture here is somebody squinting, examining something closely. I've seen some of you without your reading glasses. You look like this. You're like examining and looking closely to see what is taking place. The Lord is testing everyone. That's what this text says. God tests everyone. Not just the wicked. It explicitly said the Lord tests the righteous. Verse 5. But the wicked his soul hates. God gives men and women time to show who they are by their actions. Brother Bird, as a Marine, I'm sure you've said this before, character, integrity is who you are when nobody else is watching. Who you are in the shadows, who you are in the dark. We know, of course, God sees. We've just covered that. But this integrity, God tests who we are by giving men and women time to display their deeds. I absolutely love what Derek Kidner says about God's apparent inactivity or apparent indifference when things like foundations being destroyed are taking place. He says this, quote, God's stillness is not inertia, but concentration. His patience gives opportunity to both righteous and wicked to show what they're made of. Isn't that profound? God's stillness is not inertia. It is concentration. His eyes see, his eyelids test. His patience gives opportunity to both the righteous and the wicked to show what they're made of. This is profoundly true. God, as it were, tries the righteous patiently with the refiner's fire, and he gives the wicked enough time to prove who they really are. With regards to the testing of the righteous, this scripture says the Lord tests the righteous. What should we do with that? I love what William Cowper wrote in his poem about trials we face. Speaking of the poem, he says, None of the Lord's children may hope to escape from trial or should hope to get away from trial, nor indeed in our right minds would any of us desire to do so. For trial is the channel of many blessings. When the Lord tests you, it's a channel of blessing. He writes, "'Tis my happiness below." Not to live without the cross, but the Savior's power to know, sanctifying every loss. Trials give new life to prayer. Trials bring me to his feet. Lay me low and keep me there. Did I meet no trials here? No chastisement by the way? Might I not with reason fear I should prove a castaway? Bastards may escape the rod, sunk in earthly vain delight, 
But the true-born child of God must not, would not, if he might. We must not, would not, even if we could escape trial. Because trials are a blessing to bring us to the Savior's feet, testing us, proving who we really are. The Lord tests the righteous. But he also, this next verse, verse 6, teaches, he, he, he traps the wicked. A Hebrew word uh, translated coals, verse 6, let him rain coals on the wicked, is the Hebrew word pak, which when you study this word, I did a word study on it, literally it is a bird trap. It's a bird trap. Let him rain down bird traps on the wicked. Well, interesting picture. David is being told to flee away like a bird, isn't he? And he prays, let the wicked be caught like a bird. Let them be trapped. Let them be snared. He enjoins God to rain down bird traps on the wicked. Friends, if you're here today and you haven't repented of your sins— Repentance just means to turn directions, to to change course, to leave your sin and yourself and to put your trust and faith in God alone, in Christ alone. If you haven't repented of your sin, beware of what your sin is leading you into. Is it Admiral Akbar? It's a trap. (laughs) It's a trap. You're being led by your sin, deceived to think that you will find fulfillment And unless you repent, you will find where it leads you is destruction and judgment. God's patience and his kindness, we are told, is to lead us to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If you do not repent, be warned today from the text of this psalm, God judges righteously. God judges righteously. God's judgment is not fantasy. It is not fiction. The judgment being described here was the judgment prefigured on Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, 24. The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. That's what this text is referencing back to. But judgment is not just an Old Testament concept. In fact, in the very place where I just read in Scripture— where it says that God is patient and wanting your repentance. It also warns of fiery judgment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, 
that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Just like when the earth was judged with a flood of water, God will judge the world again, Scripture says, with fire. Listen, the wicked and the evil in Noah's day went about doing what they thought was right, caring about their own sinful desires, living in complete disregard for the God who created them. And right up until the moment the door shut, they carried about their business, and God judged with water. In the same way, we are told in Scripture that God will judge with fire. So be warned, even as the foundations are being destroyed, as people are going about thinking all is well, that they'll scoff. They'll say, you know, this thing about God, he, he doesn't care. Because look at all the evil people get away with. Look at all the, the, the wickedness out there in the world. If God really cared, he would take care of that. Oh, he will. Brothers and sisters, he is just patient. And there is an opportunity for you today to repent. God judges justly. His judgments are righteous. No one will complain that God did not give justice that was due to wicked people. Psalm 11, verse 7 says, The Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. It is in God's nature, God's character, to be just and to be righteous. He loves righteous deeds. His character is consistent with his judgment. And isn't it really good news that the same Lord who is just and loves justice, is the Lord who sits on the throne. That, that means he is completely able to enact the right and proper judgment. God is able to dispense total justice for eternity. Because listen, there are things in this life and in this world that do we not know there is no recompense for the evil that can be carried out. Some of you have wit witnessed this on battlefields. You've read about this in history books. There are wicked and evil things that can take place in this life that could never have proper justice meted out in one lifetime. God is just. Hear me today. God judges justly. He is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And in eternity, God will judge with all justice. Ultimately, the last thing David sees by faith in this psalm is that when the foundations are crumbling, God rewards the righteous. God will reward the righteous. The last part of verse 7 says, The upright shall behold his face. The reward of the upright is seeing his face. The joy of our salvation 
is the joy of communion with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessings. Seeing him face to face. Scripture says, to take this psalm in the context of all of Scripture, no man may see his face and live. No man may see his face and live. This text affirms only the upright will see his face. Brothers and sisters, that's the bad news. None of us are upright. No man could see God face to face without the good news of the gospel. The gospel seem, yes, yes, even dimly here in Psalm 11, where is the protection when the wicked assail us? In the Lord. In the Lord I take refuge. But what about that evil and wickedness that defiles us from within? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can see his face in and of ourselves. What is the good news? In the Lord, I take refuge. See it with me in Scripture. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus, in the Lord, I take refuge. And when we take refuge in Christ and his atoning work at Calvary for us, we also receive, Scripture says, his righteousness. Here's how we're getting to the upright. Who will see his face? The upright. How do we find this righteousness? In the Lord, in Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reward of our salvation is the joy of knowing God, finding in Christ the righteousness that we all need, dressed in his righteousness alone. We will faultless stand before the throne. And so we will glory and rejoice in God, Romans 5.11 says. This is the more than all these things that we find in our reconciliation. More than that, we rejoice in God. We rejoice in God. Is God the joy of your salvation, Christian? Is God the joy? Is he the one for whom you long? More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And in the Lord, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. In the Lord I take refuge. In Christ alone we find righteousness. And in the righteousness of Christ, we, by the power of the Spirit, see the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into his likeness. And one day, we will see him face to face, First John says. We will glory in him. This is the reward for righteousness found in Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, as our congregation has come through the last year to year and a half with COVID, racial tensions in our country, very divisive political election, and many other philosophical and secular assaults on our faith, all of which get mumbled and jumbled up and combined into our own personal tragedies and hardships, I have seen firsthand 
how the shaking of the foundations would threaten to shake us. Some are agitated. Some sheep are fearful. Some sheep are angry, nervous, uncertain. I confess, this is not an easy time to be a faithful Christian. And my sense is that the difficulty in continuing to sing the song of the steadfast will only increase as the days and years march on. That is why God in his kindness has allowed us to study Psalm 11 today. This psalm is so very reassuring, so timely for us. It's been helpful to my own faith, and I have prayed for you sincerely that the impact of this psalm on our congregation would be tangible, such that when the foundations are being destroyed around us, we will not fear. Instead, my prayer is that we will have the eyes of faith, get a proper perspective by looking up to heaven. Leonardtown Baptist Church, have faith in God. He's on his throne.